Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Leslie Rogers, who's Emeritus Professor at the University of New England in Australia. She is a fellow of the Australian Academy of Science and has made significant contributions to the understanding of brain development and behavior, especially the lateralization of the brain in non-human animals. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this early in the morning. Um, so I want to start with one of your earlier papers uh, from 2005, Survival uh, with an Asymmetrical Brain, Advantages and Disadvantages of Cerebral Naturalization, in which you say recent evidence in natural and semi-natural settings has revealed a variety of left-right perceptual asymmetries among vertebrates. These include uh, preferential use of the left or right visual hemifield, during activities such as searching for food, agnostic responses, or escape from predators and animals, uh, as different as fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. Yeah, I, I found this really fascinating, Leslie. You know, I, I used to think that the human brain is somewhat special. We have this left-right uh, specialization, uh, but uh, this seems to have started long time ago, maybe 500, <laughs> 500 a thousand or no, I don't know, many millions of years ago, I would imagine, right? Well, it used to be thought until the 1970s, 1980s, that having a lateralized brain or an asymmetrical brain, which means a brain that does things differently on the left and right sides, was a unique characteristic of humans. And um, it was my early work and a couple of other researchers in the 1970s and early 80s that showed that animals also, non-human species, also have lateralized brains. And to give an example, in the, uh, my first work was on the chicken. And a chick, uh, when it uses its right eye 
and mainly since it's the inputs to the left hemisphere, confined grains scattered amongst pebbles. So it's a visual discrimination task. It can do that as long as it's using the right eye and the left side of the brain. But if you put a patch over its right eye, so it's forced to use its left eye and right hemisphere, then it can't uh, do the dis discrimination at all. So that was the first evidence non-human species has visual lateralization in the brain. Yeah, so 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 what's your conjecture? Uh, I guess we have a lot more data on this now. Uh, so what's your conjecture why this happened? Uh, why did the specialization happen early on? Yes, well, uh, it's important uh, to say first that we now know that it's it's a characteristic of all vertebrate species that anyone's looked at, from uh, fish to amphibia to birds to uh, mammals and so on. So it's a very uh, ubiquitous feature of the brain. And the next question is, you know, why is it that way? What advantage does it give an animal? Yeah. And what we've been able to show, because the this left hemisphere is used to find grains, for example, in the in birds, and the right hemisphere controls uh, attack and copulation, uh, sexual behaviour, aggressive behaviour, and it also detects predators that are flying overhead. So we gave chicks a task in which they had to search for their food grains and at the same time watch out for a model predator, which we had. And if the chick had a, a good, strong, lateralised brain, then it could do both those tasks at the same time. So it could feed as well as watch out for predators, which is clearly an advantage in the natural environment. But if they didn't have this visual lateralization, and we can make chicks that way, it's another part of the story. But if they didn't have that, they got terribly confused. First of all, they didn't recognize or didn't see the predator. When they did see the predator, then they were so disturbed by it that they couldn't go back to pecking at the food again. And, and um, so they didn't form a memory of the task as a result of this conflicting uh, need to use the, the brain. and uh, But if we tested them just on the grain without the predator, they were just as good as the lateralized ones. And if we tested with the predator and not the grain, then they were just as good also as the lateralized one. It was only when they had to do the two things together that the chicks without lateralization were unable to do it. Yeah. So, and clearly in the natural environment, animals have to do more than just two things at once. I mean, they they need to watch out for predators, feed, but they need to also know where other conspecifics, other members of their species are and all of those things at once. So having a lateralized brain must be very advantageous to animals when they're living in the natural environment. Yeah, so so I was reading through. I was thinking, uh, you know, neuroscientists get very mad at me, Leslie, when I when I try to equate the brain to physical systems. But I was thinking, you know, when when we think about designing aircrafts or computers, 
and we have control systems, we have to put it on one side or the other. Yeah. Uh, if you were to replicate it on both sides, it'll be highly inefficient. Mm -hmm. And so, so from a sort of an industrial design perspective, <laughs> You know, uh, of the brain, I would imagine if you put a control center in one side, uh, you know, replicating that on the other side would be highly inefficient, I would imagine, right? Well, yes, and actually, I mean, when you're saying that, uh, some work that I did with the uh, Wilch Codes, uh, who are very famous for their research on migration in birds and how do birds achieve migration and how, and they've been able to show that they use the Earth's magnetic field. Now, I did uh, some experiments with them looking at the laterality of the bird's ability to detect the magnetic field and navigate uh, using that. And in fact, yes, the magnetic compass is lateralized um, yeah. in the same sort of way as you're saying on an aeroplane. And yeah. well, it makes a sense, sense that if you, you've got a brain of a certain size, it might be a little brain of a bee or it might be a big brain of a primate, an easy, perhaps relatively easy thing to do to increase the cognitive capacity of that brain is to put certain computational processes on one side and other kinds of uh, compu computational processes on the other side. So you've effectively more or less doubled the ability of that particular brain to deal with information and control functions. Right. So, so, so do you think it is really the efficiency that really drove the early designs? Sorry? Um, the efficiency, as you, as you say, you know, putting I, it in as opposed to replicating it. Is that what really drove the designs early on? Yes. Uh, well, that's what we think. There's still a lot of need for further research to actually test this hypothesis. But um, the idea is that uh, by, by not duplicating functions on each side, the brain becomes more efficient. Yeah. Of course, there are certain tasks in which it wouldn't pay to do that. Um, if you give an animal, for example, a task where they've got to attend to both sides simultaneously, uh, things might appear on either side and so on and so forth, um, then they do better if they're not so strongly lateralized. But the, so far, the majority of tasks that we've looked at have been achieved more efficiently with animals using their lateralized brains. Yeah. Although I should add, yeah, well, sorry. Sorry, just add one qualifier that yeah. if they're really, really strongly lateralized, this can be a, a disadvantage. And uh, we see this in humans too. You need have a lateralized brain, but not too lateralized, um, or not not all animals lateralized exactly in the same way. Right, right. Yeah, humans are. An interesting case study here, uh, and I guess we'll get into it a little bit later on. Um, so, so I would imagine humans who specialize in certain professions, like engineering, for example, uh, may exercise one side of the brain a lot more than the other. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sometimes, it's different. Yeah. 
yeah, different tasks will yeah. use one or the other. And uh, as uh, my colleague Giorgio Velortagara in Italy has shown with uh, and um, uh, with other Italian colleagues, that the the right side of the brain is used to for geometric spatial uh, analysis, whereas the left side of the brain tends to landmarks. Um, so uh, each side of the brain is doing a different thing, but it's it's handling spatial information in a different way. So depending on the task that you're using, you might be using the right hemisphere more uh, or the left hemisphere more. Yeah, so I don't know if we're going to get into this later, Leslie, but I want to ask you, um, if you use one side of the brain compared to the other, for whatever reasons, um, do we find a difference over time that you know one side gets more dominant and uh, and the other side you know, sort of gives up, so to speak, <laughs> over time? Uh, I'm talking about well. Uh, uh, no, I don't think there's been any data showing where animals have been forced to use. Although in there has been some evidence because if you uh, shut the eye of the uh, of a chick, for example, uh, and force it to use just one eye, then you do alter the laterality. Mm. And in particular, um, and, and this was some of my work, uh, the chick embryo, when it's in the egg developing, is oriented so that it occludes its left eye, and its beaks here, and its right eye is next to the eggshell, egg and light yeah. can come in to stimulate that eye uh, because it can penetrate, go through the eggshell. And it, as long as that embryo, and it's just before hatching, during its final stages of embryonic development, as long as it receives light stimulation, then the brain lateralization for visual behavior develops. But if you uh, pull the embryo's head out of the egg and occlude, so it now uh, and put a patch on its right eye and shine light into its left eye, um, you can reverse the direction of lateralization. Or if you incubate the eggs in total darkness, there'll be no visual lateralization. There are other lateralities, but I'm talking just about visual lateralization. So. Um, you know, the experience during critical stages of development will alter the lateralization and that will persist after hatching and uh, affect behavior considerably. Yeah, I mean, that that's so critical for uh, birds. Um, do we do we have any data on humans if uh, if anything like that could be done? Well, there was a hypothesis put forward <laughs> uh, some time back by Previc that uh, uh, when the uh, there's a there's a side bias for the orientation of the embryo just before birth when it locks into the, the pelvis and uh, the head is turned, and he was saying that uh, the when the mother walks forward, she tends to stimulate the um, receptors uh, for movement in. Uh, asymmetrically and as a result of this some of the asymmetries may form in humans hmm. now it's not been followed 
through with a huge amount of information, but there is a bit of data supporting uh, what's been said. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's even been hypothesised that when heads of the fetus is oriented in that way, it's also more likely to get light in one eye than the other, as in the chick. Uh, if the mother, you know, is in a bikini or something and the sun shines, uh, there'd be more stimulation of one eye than the other. But, uh, you know, yeah. as you might expect, there's not a lot of work done on humans in that. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Um, essentially, you have a brain developing, and it's developing based on experiences it can collect from that environment. Mm -hmm. And if, yes. if there is a break or stimulation of data going into the brain, uh, one could at least speculate that it could have it could have some effects. I want to go into another paper that you have from 2008, Development and Function of Lateralization in the Avian Brain. Uh, and you said the avian brain is functionally lateralized. Different strategies of choice within and between modalities are adopted by each hemisphere. Visual lateralization has been studied most, but attention to auditory, olfactory, and magnetic cues is also lateralized. So especially the magnetic cues are quite important for the avian brain, I would imagine, because they're migrating, yeah. and, right? Yes, that's uh, that's correct. So, so um, what do we learn? What do we learn from looking into the bird brain? Well, the bird brain is a is a wonderful model for studying lateralization. Um, in uh, the chick. There's so much work done now, and we can look at or what, something that needs to be looked at much more in future is the interaction between uh, the uh, laterality in one modality, say vision, and laterality in the other another modality, such as olfaction. So um, there's, you know, it's a lovely model system for looking at that. There's also a lot of work being done uh, by Ona Gunturken's laboratory in Germany, where they've looked at uh, lateralization in the pigeon. And um, uh, pigeons can be trained to do very complex tasks. And they have some very nice information about what the left and right hemisphere can do on these tasks. They've also shown in the pigeon that light affects the development of lateralization, as we found in the chicken. So the bird brain tells us a lot of things, but of course, you know, uh, you, you need to do research on other species as well. And there's yeah, a... so, so the the magnetic cues um, is lateralization sort of a necessary condition for the magnetic cues to work. I don't know anything about Leslie. I'm just speculating from an engineering perspective. <laughs> Well, the um, um, uh, the Wilchos uh, in their uh, lovely work on uh, use of the magnetic compass and uh, and also not just magnetic compass but other uh, uh, another system that is used for migration, they showed in European robins uh, that is lateralized, and they were able to show that by putting a patch on the left or right eye and looking at the, whether the birds could choose the right direction to migrate in. And they found that there was a left eye, right eye difference in that. So 
there's good evidence uh, that the the use of the cues that birds use for migration are indeed lateralized. Yeah. And and purely from a computational perspective, um, it's a bit pulp, uh, it's 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 a bit puzzling. So so I'm I'm thinking about a bird. I have information coming in through my left eye. I have information coming through my right eye. Uh, and if there are multiple processors operating simultaneously, how do, how, how how does the bird coordinate? that that decision process uh, okay yeah and this is a very important for birds with their lateralized eyes because yeah. uh, unlike us they don't have a big binocular field they have very small overlap just about sort of 16 degrees in front so their yeah. binocular field is small and their lateral field is so wide in some species they can even see behind the, the back of the head <laughs> Owls and things like that, right? Yeah. Owls uh, are looking forward with a big binocular field, but um, well, the you, do you know the um, the palm cockatoo in Australia? Um, they have their eyes so far behind that if you look at the bird from behind, you can actually see the eyes, and of course, <laughs> if you can see their eyes, they can see you. Yeah. So, um, and the point is that they've got very different visual worlds coming in from each side and that could be extremely conflicting um, uh, if you're going to respond to a predator more on the left side which is what we've found not only in birds but also in 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 toads and frogs and so on then you know this seems to be a real disadvantage because predators could come from the right side as easily as from the left um, so if you're more reactive or react sooner uh, when it's on the left, uh, you see you you must it, there must be a disadvantage of being lateralized. So something that being having a lateralized brain gives to the individual must be uh, must overcome that uh, disadvantage. So it must be more important than the disadvantage of uh, being lateralized. Uh, sorry, than responding to predators only on one side, for example. Yeah. When I say that, that's an extreme uh, way of putting it because, in fact, the bird would respond to a predator on its right side too. It's just a bit faster and can mm -hmm. deal with it, recognises it just a bit better on the left side. It's not um, an exclusive thing, as it one tends to imply when talking about it. But... Um, um, sorry, what were we? Yeah, so, so I was wondering. So computationally, uh, I was just wondering. So, so, so thinking about the bird again, it's much more efficient recognizing the predator coming on the left side, mm -hmm. and much less efficient on the right side. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it does recognize a predator on the right side too. So there's some sort of a, a computational. Um, you know, in the artificial intelligence jargon, some sort of a voting mechanism that happens in the brain. So I'm wondering if, if we have, you know, any information on that, how it actually ultimately makes a decision that's a predator yes. or not a predator. Well, yes, and that's where the, the inter-hemispheric communication is important. Uh, as you know, in humans, 
we have a huge corpus callosum that collects, connects the left and right sides of the brain and transfers information between hemispheres. Now, in other species, that is, there are these connections also, but they're, they're not as big as we have in the human brain. But uh, in birds, for example, they have um, they actually have three uh, commissures. They have one anterior one far forward in the, the brain, and then further back they have the tectal commissure and the posterior commissure. Uh, those three commissures transfer information between hemispheres, and they obviously would um, uh, pass the information to the other hemisphere, or they may turn off the other hemisphere. So if this hemisphere says, I'm taking charge of this behaviour, then it can switch off the other one, inhibit it. Uh, or if it's important to transfer the information across uh, to get the other one engaged, that would be via those commissures. So yeah. there has to be inter-hemispheric uh, communication it's just right, a right. yeah. You can't have yes. one. Uh, you have one doing one thing, the other doing another thing, and at some point they are sharing that information. They're sharing the information, but uh, is there is there some sort of dominance we can see uh, since the since the right hemisphere? Um, the way I understand this, Leslie, uh, reading through your papers, that. Uh, it appears to be more efficient in looking at uncertainty, looking at sort of new information coming in, whereas the left one is more analytical, um, you know, the way that we think about deep learning neural networks, mm. it has seen a lot of sample, you know, a lot of labeled data, so to speak. So it has heuristics that it operates on very efficiently. So is there at some point, is there some sort of a dominance that happens to say the right brain says, hey, I'm going to make the decision, you shut up. <laughs> yes, well, uh, <laughs> I think that must occur. Um, yeah. And that uh, if the left hemisphere is engaged in uh, responses that the bird's making to a new learning task or, you know, searching for grain and pebbles, there must be some... Uh, certainly not exclusive, but some uh, period of time where it takes over control of behaviour. Yet if the predator's seen and or something new happens and the right hemisphere is the one specialised for that performance, then that will uh, obviously respond. Now, if there is a predator... Uh, it would be terribly disadvantaged to go on looking for the grain. So the right hemisphere must be able to switch off the searching behaviour in order to attend to the predator or and to decide whether it really is, or to a novel stimulus, decide whether it really is dangerous and you should stop feeding and flee or whether it really doesn't matter, go back to feeding again. And that's the sort of thing that would be happening in that uh, dual task that I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Could we extend this to humans, Leslie, in any way? So, you know, I'm thinking back 100,000 years ago, the, the left right uh, specialization would have had a lot of different uh, advantages, uh, uh, clearly, uh, not clearly, but my, 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 <laughs> 
<laughs> my uh, uh, very limited knowledge on this is that that the left brain is more mathematical, language resides there. The right brain appears to be more creative, able to process more uncertain information, very, very not very dissimilar from the avian brain. And we can see that 100,000 years ago, what that would have done to humans. But for the modern human, it is a, it's a very different situation, isn't it? I mean, how, how, how have we sort of transitioned into this modern world with an ancient brain? Well, I mean, in humans, the left hemisphere, in, in the majority of humans, it's the left hemisphere that we use for understanding speech, uh, understanding language and producing speech. This is not true for all individuals, uh, and it's not necessarily just reversed either. But um, uh, these are sort of ancient organizations of the brain that we've retained yeah. and uh, the brain in humans it's even structurally different on the left side in the language and speech areas than it is on the right and you know human brain is um, uh, looks differently when you just look at the whole brain it's uh, sort of like got a talk it's twisted so uh, the left side is more out the back but this part in the visual area and the right brain more out the front. So uh, the lateralized brain is very marked in humans. Um, mm. So I think it must be, you know, such an essential function of the brain that it will be retained. Um, yeah. any, any brain, regardless of its size, achieves something important, namely increasing its ability to process and so on by being lateralized. So I don't think we'll alter that. Is that, is that, was, is that, um, yeah, I, I'm just wondering, you know, you know, clearly it gave, gave us some survival benefits. So, you know, the brain has been selected, um, for whatever specialization it has had. Uh, but then in the modern context, um, it's, it's quite different, right? I mean, the last hundred years, we have changed ourselves. You know, we don't have predators. We don't have, um, you know, we, we do stuff that we, we haven't been doing <laughs> for 50,000 years ago. So I'm wondering how the brain cope with that, with this modern context that was almost suddenly presented to an ancient organ that is highly specialized in some way. Yeah, I mean, clearly, different experiences do alter the brain, uh, particularly during uh, periods of development when it's more plastic than others. Uh, and there could be effects that you're suggesting. Uh, but we do know, for example, stress responses are, in, uh, are controlled by the right hemisphere. Uh, emotions, uh, particularly intense emotions, are expressed. Uh, using the the right uh, a more a function of the right hemisphere, as we find in non-human species as well, and um, these features of the brain are kept. I mean, it may be that we don't have predators, that we don't have you know dinosaurs coming up on us or something, but we do have to keep watching um, 
well, I don't know, if you're working, if the boss is coming, uh, if somebody's <laughs> over your shoulder, we probably use the same pathways as um, ancient humans were using to survive, to avoid predators. I mean, yeah, yeah. We use yeah, yeah. predators in our society a lot these days. <laughs> yeah, so we, we have Just threats. lost your image. Oh, yeah. I'm right. So, so we have threats. So essentially, it's sort of a, the same situation uh, as before. Uh, but as so you were saying, the specializations that we have had from uh, from 50,000 years ago, we sort of adapt that to mm -hmm. the modern context. Uh, it's sort of the same sort of processing, same sort of understanding. Now, the boss is a predator, you know, uh, or whatever, <laughs> whatever the case may be, right? So, so I want to go into another paper that you have uh, from 2013, which is about honeybees. So you say sophisticated cognitive abilities have been documented in honeybees, possibly an aspect of their complex soci sociality. Invertebrates brain asymmetry enhances cognition and directional biases of brain function are a putative adapt uh, adaptation of social behavior. Here we show that honeybees display a strong lateral preference to use a right antenna in mm -hmm. social interactions. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating thing. So, so could you talk a bit about that? Yes, yeah, so even the uh, very small brain of the honeybee, we were able to uh, find, well, initially it was shown by a PhD student at Australian National University uh, working with um, Zawun Zhang, who's uh, very famous for his work on bees. And uh, what she showed was that uh, if you train a bee to recognise a particular odour, this is a standard test they use in bees, um, that you was, they associate, say, uh, a lemon odour with... A sugar reward and you have the little bee sitting in a um, little cylinder thing and uh, you can wave the um, lemon odor around where the antennae are and if the bird has learned I mean not the bird the bee has learned that association it will uh, put its proboscis out in expectation of getting a sugar reward so it's a nice uh, training paradigm now what the um, a student uh, was able to show is that uh, you can train that conditioned behavior you uh, as long as the bee uses its right antenna but not if it uses its left antenna and we uh, Giorgio Volotagara and I followed this up with this, some experiments we looked at uh, can the bee remember better when you've trained it, you leave it for a certain period of time, and then you want to see whether it can recall the memory. And, well, we uh, one would predict, of course, that they'd recall it better when they use their right antenna than they do with their left, which we, in fact, found, but only for a short period, up to about three hours after training. Beyond that, or beyond six hours after training, they can recall the memory, which is now what one might call a long-term memory. They can recall it as long as they're using the left antenna and not the right. Mm. And that was actually 
uh, an accidental finding I made because I left them for longer and I wanted to repeat the experiment. And uh, it's actually the left antenna. So uh, uh, they lay lay down uh, short-term memory in a different place in the brain from where they lay down the long-term memory. No, no. So, so that's that's so interesting. So, um, so the specialization there is uh, perhaps a right antenna is 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 collecting information, sort of a tactical response, uh, because a short term memory is more important. So it's basically saying I'm going to respond to something, some stimuli within a short period of time. And if there's no such stimulus, uh, no such action is needed, then it's sort of then converted into long-term memory, some sort of a heuristic that you could apply in a in a maybe in a in a in a latter encounter of similar sort or something like that, right? Is that the way to think about it? Yes, I th- and I think by keeping the long and the short-term stores separately, you get you would get less confusion as a bee flies around, say, to different flowers and so on and samples them. That's all going on using the right antenna. Uh, but if it uh, then recalls yesterday, I went out to the in another direction and got another kind of flower, then they would use their long-term memory. So the, there's a sort of a short-term processing of information going on and a longer term, more established memory that they can draw on. And is, is there a similar process in humans? Uh, yes, there's some evidence that we uh, form longer term memories in in uh, one hemisphere and shorter term memories in the other. So there is some evidence of that. But it's I must say that you know that's an area for the future to really look into. Um, yeah. Mm. yeah, so, so the, again, so going back to the avian brain again, um, if I understand this correctly, Leslie, the right brain is specializing in new information, looking for predators, you know, things like that. But the short term yeah. memory is so much important there, right? Um, it's sort of a binary decision that you're going to make, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And you can, yeah. once you make a decision, you can throw out the information. There isn't a lot that you're going to gain from that. Whereas the left brain um, is really about heuristics, right? It's about principles, about equations, and so on. That There's you can about learning, about learning and forming rules uh, that control the behavior, adapting to the situation at hand, focusing on particular targets. In fact, um, we think of the left hemisphere as having a sustained response to, you know, looking, uh, uh, learning, going after uh, prey or things like that. Whereas the right hemisphere is uh, responding more to what we call releases in in ethology, uh, to things that appear and you've got to react quickly to them. It could be not a predator. It might be another uh, member of your own species. Uh, in fact, some very nice work has shown that uh, its social behaviour is largely a function of the right hemisphere. 
And in, in a huge range of vertebrate species, from whales to kangaroos to um, uh, just trying to think of the whole range they looked at, but the Russian group uh, showed that the mother, uh, the maternal animal, tend, uh, has has her offspring on her left side when she's in whales swimming along the, the uh, offsprings more likely to be on the left than the right um, and it's true for a huge range of mammals so she there's a monitoring that she's doing of the offspring using her right hemisphere just making sure everything's okay and so on uh, of course, in contrast, the uh, the offspring would be monitoring the mother using its right eye and left hemisphere. So it's an interesting combination there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I want to go to another review article that you have, that a function of the bicameral mind. Uh, one of the things I found um, very interesting is the individual's asymmetry compared to the population's oh, estimate. Yeah. And this is a really, really complex question. Um, you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. Well, there, yes, there are basically two sorts of laterality or asymmetry. One we call individual asymmetry, so that in a group of animals or a species, um, the, some individuals are lateralized in one way and some in the other. For example, in um, um, marmoset monkeys, half of them are right-handed and half are left-handed. But there's another kind of uh, laterality, and that's called population lateralization or directional lateralization. And that's when the majority of individuals in the population or species are lateralized in the same direction as we have for human-handedness, the majority being right-handed. Um, so there, the, these are two interesting types of lateralization, And the hypothesis that um, uh, uh, George Avalotagar and I put forward is that uh, the, in the, uh, sorry, the population-level lateralization should occur more commonly when animals are social than if they're largely asocial, they won't have, uh, they might have individual lateralization, but not population lateralization. And that's why we got round to testing the bees. Yeah. Because bees, there are a huge number of thousands and species of bees in the world, and some are social, like the honey bees, uh, but others are considered to be asocial um, uh, and one one with that the mason bee the European mason bee and um, osmia species there are di different species um, and oh sorry I've lost your image but um, the uh, yeah now I see it Sorry, so what we did was to test this hypothesis that uh, the population level lateralization occurs when individuals have to interact socially with, with each other, when one lateralized individual needs to interact with another lateralized individual, there must be 
it pay off if they're lateralized in the same direction. So we looked at, uh, and the, the laboratory in Italy too, a range of behaviors. And that one we talked about with the antennae um, yep. and the right antennae being used in preference to the left during learning. If you look at the Mason B, the asocial one, you don't have that asymmetry. It's only in the honeybees and also in, uh, we've tested a number of Australian social bees, mm. wild bees. As long as they're social, they have that, and the asocial one doesn't have that asymmetry. But then we thought there are occasions in which these mason bees do interact, namely when they first um, uh, come out and take up spots in the on flowers and various things then they meet each other and when they engage in sexual behavior they actually have to interact socially so are some of their behaviors they don't have a, a big number of social behaviors but are some of them actually uh, lateralized when they have to interact socially and that's what we found when when they fight each other, because they're very aggressive, these mason bees, particularly the females, they're really aggressive to each other. And uh, if you put two bees in a petri dish together, you can score how many times they um, they interact aggressively with each other. And if they using their right antenna, they don't. Uh, do that, but if they use their left, they uh, uh, the aggression is shown. So in fact, um, the asocial bee has some uh, population level lateralization, but only in those occasions when they interact socially. So it's yes. something to aligning your direction of lateralization has something to do with having to interact with each other and be social. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was just thinking, Leslie. Um, uh, lateralization has some disadvantages, and so in in some sort, uh, if I understand this correctly, in, in some way, there is sort of a competing aspect, uh, being social against lateralization. Yes. And uh, so, if you are very social, then there are expectations of lateralization and hence you get uniformity in lateralization. If you're asocial, you don't have any such constraints. You don't have to be lateralized. That's right. And there's survival benefits. So so, so do, you, do you think if you, if you look at the whole you know, cohort of biological systems, do you think we will find sort of asocial non-lateralization concentration and then social and lateralization concentrations. In other words, the 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 other combinations are not really possible, right? Uh, other combinations of. In a, in other words, if you're asocial, you probably don't lateralize because it it comes oh. with some some disadvantages. If you're social, perhaps you lateralize because it, it gives you. Uh, you have to do it in some sense, right? So would we see concentrations in those two cohorts? Yes, well, I, uh, with your asocial, uh, you could be not lateralized at all, but then you would lose the disadvantage. Oh, sorry, you would have a disadvantage 
of not having uh, as much capacity in the brain if you did yeah. everything on both sides. So yeah. there'd be, uh, if you're asocial, there's still the uh, advantage gained by being individually lateralized. And that, of course, uh, would be a real advantage because you, some animals in the, in the group might, or some animals would respond when a predator came on the left and some on the right. And, you know, overall for that species, there would be an advantage of not aligning your lateralization and becoming, uh, having a population le uh, level lateralization. But if you're in a group, clearly the need to interact socially um, overrides uh, the disadvantage of everybody in the in the group being lateralized in the same direction. Yeah. It's a bit like the I mean, perhaps a, a fairly trite example is that you know if you're going to shake hands with somebody, you, you know you're in trouble if you put out the wrong hand and so. <laughs> Yeah, so it is not lateralization per se. It is really the difference between individual lateralization, which is really driven by a brain efficiency, uh, design efficiency perspective, versus population lateralization, which is driven by social, asocial aspects. Exactly. So, so how about the humans? So uh, you talked a bit about left-handedness and right-handedness in humans. What, what do we know about that? Why, 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 do, we, why do we have that? Well, uh, there are, of course, a lot of people who know a lot more about the human situation than I do. But um, uh, clearly, I mean, it, it's very ancient in, in humans. You can trace it back to the cave paintings and which hand was painted on the uh, walls of the caves and so on. Um, it's thought to be due to something to do with tool using, that once humans started to use tools um, and the other other humans had to learn from them, uh, then there was, you know, tools were either designed in a way that were only used for one hand or it was easier to learn or uh, copy the use of a tool if you uh, use the same hand. Uh, but if you look at the, um, the stone tools, and the way they napped that indicates, in fact, that, uh, that, that early humans had already a hand preference for uh, these activities. So that, um, once you have tools, you have uh, a clear reason why you would use one hand for it and the other hand yeah. not. Yeah, so... It's so, so I guess that, that goes into selection uh, in some way. So the father uses the right hand, teaches the kid how to use the tool. Uh, and if the kid is right-handed, you have an advantage. You have an overall selection advantage over time. So you have a higher percentage of right-handedness. I, I saw something that, um, that looked at sort of population right-handedness and left-handedness. And there's some indication that really violent populations are left-handed. Yeah. Well, what is the yeah. basis of yeah. Well, that's an interesting study yeah, uh, done by Fourier and colleagues uh, that showed that in, in human groups that are more, uh, more violent uh, actually have higher 
percentage of, of left-handed individuals. Now, still, uh, I think the left-handedness is still less common than the right-handedness even in them, but it's a higher percentage of left-handedness in those that can uh, uh, are more aggressive. Well, I mean, all I can say, and I, you know, I, I'm certainly not an expert on the human-handedness side of things, but um, if you're using the left hand more, you're using your right hemisphere more. Uh, right hemisphere, as we know from all the work on animals, is the one that controls intense emotion and aggression. So it mm. fits with with the uh, studies that are done on animals. And if you look at um, uh, 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 quite a few species have been looked at to see whether the, if a, if a conspecific approaches uh, the animal, it's much more likely to attack it and attack it more aggressively on its left side. A former student of mine studied this in in toads and frogs, and um, if the, they 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 attack each other by uh, put, putting the tongue out, particularly hitting their con the eye region much more of that attack on the left side than the right. It was also shown in uh, by another team in Gallada baboons. They're more aggressive uh, to other baboons to their left side. So that would fit with the left-handed humans if the, the, you know, they're using their right hemisphere more, so more aggression. Yeah. It'll yeah, I'm just... ended people. You know, <laughs> yeah, the modern context, I was thinking, you know, if if we find a left-handed cricket player or a tennis player more elegant in the modern context, uh, then, you know, there'll be survival benefits to left-handedness. Well, in fact, that <laughs> has been shown that uh, in left-handed uh, sports, I can't quite recall which uh, sports now, but it could have been cricket, I can't remember, uh, but left-handers... Uh, do have more success in sports. Well, that could be because they're, you know, they're, they're not so common and therefore their opponents don't know how to deal with it as well. But maybe they're more aggressive and <laughs> go, go for it more. I don't... Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, we have a lot of data in sports now, so it would be very interesting to, to look at that. The obvious thing, as you said, if most of the people are right-handed, then a left-handed batter or or a tennis player would be unusual. Yeah, would be a bit difficult to get used to, and that sort of throw them off, so to speak. Yeah. So that gives them an advantage. Um, but the other aspect, you say, if the right brain is controlling the left hand, uh, then uh, perhaps your attitude to sport could be quite yeah. different. <laughs> I was just thinking you'll perhaps test it in the swimmers because, I mean, I don't think being left or right and they're just doing it on their own, more or less, um, uh, whether you still saw it in in swimming competitions, left or right-handers are different. No, but, yeah, yeah. That, but it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, excellent, yeah. The, uh, so, Ceci, look forward um, in this area. Where do you think... The research would go um, in this arena. Um, where do you think we can learn more about this uh, lateral specialization, especially 
in the context of humans? Well, uh, in the context of humans, the, um, there's so much more uh, ability to image what's going on in the brain. Uh, so all of the fMRI studies and so on, they're, they're going to increase. The data sets are going to get larger and people do meta-analysis and so on. Um, so we'll get closer to an understanding of, uh, of what the um, also the genetic, you know, the genome-wise genetic uh, analysis that's already being done in humans. Uh, all of these things will eventually be applied to animals too. Um, it'll be some of the things will have to be adapted, but uh, um, these are the kind of questions. What genes are being expressed differently in uh, not only in left or right-handed, but animals that use the left or right hemisphere more. Um, perhaps as an example of the, uh, this, um, just in passing, the le I mentioned before that marmosets, the little monkeys, some are left-handed and some are right. Now, the left and right-handed marmosets show different reactivity to novelty and to stress. Um, and yeah. if you um, uh, and they make different judgments. So when they're using the left or right hand, presumably using the right or left hemisphere to different extents, it affects their uh, how they express behaviour. And um, this would be something that would be very interesting to follow up in more species and so on. Um, there's another whole area that I'm interested in and will develop in the future, I'm sure, is the the relevance of this sort of work to welfare of species. By knowing their laterality, can we uh, make adjustments uh, to the conditions in which we keep them in farming or other uh, captivity, forms of captivity? Can we... Um, uh, you know, make uh, adjust things for that. Um, if left-handers are more uh, stress-reactive, perhaps we have to have a different environment for those than we do for right-handers and so on. Um, those are some of the questions uh, yeah. that need to that will be addressed or starting to be addressed now, actually. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking about two areas uh, also, uh, Leslie. One is crime. I wondered if there is any data that shows uh, when you use your left hand, uh, you are more aggressive, and um, you know whether that has some implications uh, from a policy, not policy, from an intervention perspective. <laughs> Another yeah. is embryos uh, that you talked about in the case of the chicks, um, uh, the the light. Uh, aspects of, you know, uh, light that affecting the, the development of the brain. There could be auditory signals that might affect the development of the brain. So I wondered if it has implications for human uh, embryos and, and developments as well. Well, you see, there's a, quite a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that uh, certain uh, conditions like autism, um, uh, propensity for depression and so on are related to altered brain asymmetry in humans. Uh, 
And in the autism case, there are critical periods when the brain must experience certain things um, and, and move on to the next one and so on. As we've seen in the chick with the light, the effect of light in the embryo, there are sensitive periods when certain sorts of learning or, or brain modification must occur. And there is a thought now that uh, these, if these sensitive periods get kind of mixed, out, mixed up or prolonged or missed or something, then that can lead to these, um, some of these uh, um, dysfunctional conditions. Or, um, and, and there is a beginning of that sort of research in humans. And now, you know, since it's easy to scan the brain, even of uh, very young uh, uh, newborns, uh, we'll get much more information about how the human brain develops during its early stages and what this means perhaps in the long term. It's quite difficult to make those connections, but um, that's where some of the research on humans is heading. Yeah, yeah. I think the whole focus on development is important. And, you know, there's a, a lot of people will immediately go to the genetic side of things. But I think in doing so, we've forgotten to look in enough detail actually at how the environment at particular stages of development uh, lead to different uh, brain conditions and so on. Yeah, it's not necessarily the first nine months. It's not just the embryo stage, but also perhaps the first couple of years, right? Yes. During Yes, exactly. And um, not even, I mean, the brain is still developing, in humans, is still developing its lateralization up to about 10, 12 years old. Hmm. So there's a lot going on there that could be affected by particular phases of learning. And of course, oh, yeah. the obvious is when you learn language and what language. <laughs> Yeah, so we could talk about this forever, Leslie. So, you know, uh, so first 10 years. So if you if you pick up a sport, if you learn music, if you have a language that you're switching after the first 10 years into another, all yes. of these have significant effects, I would imagine, on the lateralization, right? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, well, yeah, where... And where in the brain you put the language, you know, and the second language, what happens? Does it, and I mean, there is work uh, going on in that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this has been great, Leslie. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for asking. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.